Namaste to all of you. I'm happy to be with you here for this satsang. I'm, my intention is to continue the presentation from last week. Last week I simply started presenting the choices of evolution. I spoke in the beginning of this year about the situation of 2021-2022 energy. I expressed the fact that from the standpoint of yoga, it's very important that people can manifest their aspiration, that you know what you want, you know what you are trying to get out of this life, and that especially for the spiritual seekers, they are going according to their hearts. And once we define the fact that we follow this aspiration of the heart, then of course we came to the point of which path to follow. And um, I have started last week in uh, presenting the paths, like ultimately it's what you choose. If you listen carefully and you meditate, and if you manage to see yourself in what I say, and to identify which is your main motivation, which is your main shakti, then you identify which is your main direction in evolution. Not everybody does the same practice. Actually, the combination of factors in one spiritual practice is almost infinitely different. Tibetan monasteries, they sometimes printed a motto on the entrance, although all of them were Buddhist, and some of them were even yogis. Not all of them were of yogis, fine, far from that. And they had the motto which said, as many monks, so many paths. Like, if you are 20 people in this room, there are 20 paths in this room. You are climbing the same mountain, the mountain of yoga, the mountain of spirit, but you are come climbing it according to your specificity, according to your energy. And one way of understanding that in the mysteries of Kashmiri Shaivism is to understand it according to the three ultimate energies. Before the energy is one, then before that the energy comes from a triadic division. There are three energies which are called Icha, Jnana, Kriya, and these energies are each one of them forming a path of entering into the unified energy. Once you have reached the unified energy, the Uma or the Adi Shakti, the Para Shakti, the unified aspect of energy, then one has reached at the level of divinity because Shiva and Shakti are like the two facets of a coin, like the two sides of a coin, and each one of them is leading to the other and the other way around. And thus, uh, there, we are not talking about a path anymore. And I was attempting, perhaps for the first time in the years of these satsangs, to make a new presentation to show you the paths according to the energies. It's exactly like looking at the same subject. We're talking about what yoga should I do? What practice should I do? What fits best for me? Am I more a bhakti yogi? Am I more a karma yogi? Am I more this? Am I more that? Uh, we are trying to look at this from the standpoint of the three shaktis. It's like a completely different angle of view. Okay, that one is giving us technical problems. That's why probably it was off. 
it will do the same probably sooner or later, let's see. So uh, it's a bad contact or the lamp is dying. So basically, it's like looking at the same problem of ultimately the most practical thing, like what shall I do? What am I good for? What is working for me? If I have some spiritual aspiration, and my spiritual aspiration is as big as this, or as big as that, when I have some spiritual aspiration, in what do I put it? Because I may be putting it in trying to be what I am not, and then some results will not happen. I kept on telling you, when I lived for eight years in Denmark and teaching yoga there, the students from that country, they told me that according to their knowledge, in a thousand years of Christianity, in Denmark, there has not appeared one single Christian saint. There is not a Christian saint from Denmark. It might not be entirely true, but if there are, there are one or two in a thousand years, which when you compare to Italy, to Spain, to Greece, or to other countries, to the Middle East, even to France and other places, you will find tens of saints, maybe hundreds of saints, being produced in the same Why? It's simply because that direction, that method, of spiritual development, which is the part of the Christian religion, does not fit to every temperament, does not fit to every egregore, does not fit to every dominant chakra. It fits only to some, or it fits to some better than the others. So the same discourse exists in Agama when comparing it to yoga. I am going to the Kriya Yoga. Again, don't understand that I want to say anything wrong about these examples. I'm going to the Kriya Yoga of Paramahamsa Yogananda, and what I have to do is every day I have to practice hours of the Kriya number one before I'm getting to a more advanced stage. And the Kriya number one is basically taking energy from Ajna to Muladhara, from Muladhara to Ajna, together with the breath and so on. It's an Ajna Chakra meditation. But I want to play with God. I want to love God. I want to be in a relationship with God like Rumi was with God. No, no, you have to do Kriya Yoga. Go back to your bungalow and do Kriya Yoga. It doesn't fit. Then I am simply not succeeding because another method would have fitted best to me. I'm going to a Christian monastery. You have to do the prayer of the heart, the prayer of the heart, the prayer of the heart, the prayer of the heart. But I have problems with my heart chakra. It's not my main instrument. I would like to be more like Sir Isaac Newton. I would like to understand the universe. I'm a super intelligent person. I want to see the music of the spheres. I want to understand the ratios of Pythagoras. I want to understand the laws of the hermetic tradition. The prayer of the heart can be very wonderful for some people, but maybe not for me. And thus, the biggest problem in spirituality, once you decided that you want to put some energy in spirituality, that you want to give some of your time and energy to the spiritual quest, is which weapon should you use? I am better fighting with a sword, or I am better fighting with a gun? Am I a shooter or a swordsman? Or I am a bare hand fighter, like a karate do kind of fighter. Which is my best ability? Bare hand, gun, or sword? Then 
I have to find my weapon, my preferred weapon. It's the same in spirituality. Everybody has a preferred weapon. And therefore we look very much into the fact if people are following the path which fits to them like a hand fits in a glove. That it's your path and you know that it's your path and the effects are beautiful and things are moving quickly and efficiently. And that's why, just because some of these methods seem to be very diverse, I'm trying to look at them from a fresh angle. Group them in another way. Last week I spoke about the path of the Icha Shakti, which means generally will, desire, love. And there we see a lot of things, because on one hand we have that with the mind, We want it and want it and want it. But on another level, it goes into the heart. And from the heart, I want God and I want God and I want God and I want God. But it can move even to the sex. I have no other understanding, exception made of Svadhisthana Chakra. My desire is a desire from the second chakra. For me, God is like a beautiful woman and I want to worship her transfigure her and make love to her and therefore my desire starts even with sex that's why either I speak about sexual yoga or I speak about bhakti yoga or I speak about some yogas of the mind just longing aspiration I'm talking about the same shakti they are all under the same umbrella they are all based on the fact that there exists a longing what's your relationship with God I long for God in the meaning that I love God. I want God. It's the energy of Icha Shakti. I desire God. Can God ever be mine? Yes and no. Of course, logically no. But in Bhakti Yoga, people feel like they become one with God and all that. I'm not going to go into much details because I spoke about this. This is, as you use this force of desire. Either it's manifested uh, as low as sexuality, or either it's manifested like I desire this union with the divine from my mind, it's still the same energy, it's still the same ray. It's like the three shaktis, Icha, Jnana, Kriya, are like three rays which start from the heart of God. And one ray is with will, Love, desire, is just different degrees on the same ray, according to the chakras, but it's still the same kind of energy. And that's why, for some people, their relationship with the universe, if you don't like the word God, just use the word universe. The Tibetans and the Buddhists in general, they mention that there exists a Buddha nature, which is eternal, infinite, perfect, absolute, And basically, it's all about the universe. The universe is the mandala, is the symbol of that universal consciousness, of that Buddha nature. And basically, we want to reach the truth. We want to reach the reality. So even if you put it in this way, which is the same, but just expressed with different words, it basically tells me that I want to unite with this reality. One of them is through willing it wishing it, loving it, desiring it, longing for it. But there are two other energies which may define 
what I'm going depends. I don't know how fast I'm going to speak because I didn't make a curriculum. I didn't make a syllabus for the lecture. I'm speaking freely and therefore we'll see. It will take whatever time it will take. The second of the major three energies of God, of Shiva in Kashmiri Shaivism, is Jnana Shakti. Jnana is generally translated as knowledge. So some people don't manifest through the fact that they want to own God, have God, long God, wish for God. Some people want to know. They want to know God, and indirectly because to know God is to know something which is transcendental, which has no consequence outside, but when it reflects into manifestation in Prakriti, that basically means to know everything. To know all. It, it is reflected in the divine attribute of omniscience. Know all knowing. I would like to know the universe, to know the forces of the universe, to know all the chakras, to know all the lokas, to know all the 229 bhuvanas, to know all the laws of the universe, to simply know the universe like great seers who saw the universe from this standpoint. They told us that the universe at the highest levels manifests as a harmony which is flabbergasting the mind. The mind, although it wants to understand, it is in awe in front of this supreme harmony in which everything fits with everything. Everything makes sense with everything. It is exactly like when Jesus says to his disciples, he says, for you, even every hair on your head is accounted for before God. And therefore, it's like he said, don't worry. No. How can the cosmic consciousness has such a form of knowledge, which means to be able to be present in every atom of this universe, in every elementary particle, in every part of this universe? Some people wish God. They have an almost... Uh, kinesthetic desire to hug God, to treat God like a lover, like it's a lovemaking with God. For other people, it's more of a knowledge. It's like God is pure knowledge. God is the spirit of the universe. And I want to join with this spirit. And how will I know? Well, because then I know everything. It is significant that Buddha, who followed such a path, when he chose the name Bodhi, Bodha, to define what happened to him, this the state of Nirvana, Buddha himself, and as it is translated even in English, the concept of enlightenment, to be an enlightened being means to know a lot, to know more than the ignorant people, to know what life and death are to know about reincarnation or metempsychosis or whatever you want to call it, to know about the life after death, to know about the laws of metaphysics and evolution, to know about what is happening. So from that knowledge, you can take the proper decisions. You can live in the light of knowledge. 
this is also a path to enlightenment, but it is in yoga expressed more from the path of jnana yoga. Like the question of the jnana yogis illustrated so beautifully by Ramana Maharishi, who made a mixture with bhakti yoga as well, but much of his method is precisely this thing, like who am I? That's the whole mystery. It's a question which Ramana Maharishi meditated upon for 60 years, 50 years, whatever. He got enlightened at 17 years of age, and then he meditated with that for a lifetime. It's never enough. You, never, you always stand to see more, to understand more, to know more, no, because there is no final stage to that question. Some in the Q&A, somebody was asking me the other day, who am I? No, it's exactly the same issue. No, who reaches the bottom of that question? It cannot be expressed mentally unless you use some metaphysical concepts like Shankaracharya said, who am I? I'm consciousness and bliss without end. I'm Shiva, I'm Shiva. But like most people, especially when they did not study seriously some Kashmiri Shaivism, if they say, you know, I'm in confused, I don't know who I am, I want to find myself, and you tell them there is an answer. It's coming from Adi Shankaracharya. I'm consciousness and bliss without end. I'm Shiva, I'm Shiva. It's like you gave me an answer which is so big that it becomes unattainable and abstract. I cannot relate to it, you know. My feeling about myself is that I'm a person who is tortured by doubts, and I'm a person that has pain in their life, and I have confusion, and I don't know if I should do this or if I should do that. Every day in my life I have to make choices, and after I make choices I have to live with the consequences of those choices. And thus, now you are telling me I'm consciousness and bliss without end. Like, what does it mean to be consciousness and bliss without end? Because this morning, somebody told me something shitty in a telephone conversation, and I got fucked up for 10 hours non-stop, and I felt I wanted to bang my head against the wall. What do you mean I'm consciousness and bliss without end? Are you joking me? Are you teasing me? What kind of... I cannot relate to that answer. That answer sounds like a contraption, like a concoction. That answer sounds like artificial. It sounds like some crazy philosopher put that together, but how does that relate to me? No, I can't get there. The gap between me and that answer is infinite. Like, and thus, basically what I'm trying to say here is there is, for some people... Not so much the thirst for wishing God, wanting God. I would almost say possessing God, because desire at a certain level, it's almost like a form of possession. Of course, God doesn't let you possess Him, but your subjective perception in the beginning is that you might be able to. Then you'll discover that you are not, that only by being detached you manage to have this love for God. But for some people is no, I want to know. I want to know. I very much share this experience with some people because when I was starting my path of yoga, I discovered that there were so many truths about chakras, resonance, planes of the universe. All the esoteric knowledge was so amazing 
and it explained so many things. And when it was presented in an intelligent way, it was fitting in an amazing way and it explained pretty much of the reality in which we live. That basically for the first years, I think, in my yoga experience in this life, I was consumed more by this. I did not understand too much bhakti. Like, I was not a very loving nature when I was a teenager and then when I started. I was a scientific nature. And for me, my connection with the reality was by knowledge. I wanted first to know it. How can you love something which you don't know? Of course, today I understand that it is possible to love irrationally and beyond the phenomenon of knowledge. You just love because you love. Because the love, the icha, the desire of God is a reality by itself. And you don't need to explain it, but if you have it, and if you don't have it, for some people, first of all, they want to see the light by the knowledge, by explaining reality. Even Buddha, he codified everything. There are the four noble truths. There are the eight things or nine things, according to some traditions, which have to be done afterwards. When you understood the four noble truths, if you want to get out of pain, then you have to do the following eight or nine things. And so on and so forth. He did it in like shedding light. First, we have to shed light about what life is. The first noble truth is that life contains pain. That pain is inextricably connected with life. And if you are alive, you are bound to have a lot of pain. So if you live with the absurd hope that you will not have pain, you are lying to yourself. Like Buddha first wanted to make things clear so that from that clarity, which he called bodhi or enlightenment, there should come the conclusions. Do I want this? Some people will say, even even if life contains a lot of pain... I can take it. Life has also a lot of sweet things. And sometimes you make love, and sometimes you watch a sunset, and sometimes you do this, and sometimes you do that, and it's all worth it. And yes, sometimes you have shitty blue days, but you have had also a lot of happiness. But at least you should decide. And other people will say, well, if Buddha is true... Like Buddha, some people would say he was a pessimistic thinker, that in the end of life he saw old age, disease, death, and everybody is going there. Nobody escapes death, nobody escapes old age, nobody escapes disease at one point or another, at least in the last stages of life. No, And therefore Buddha said, I can't tolerate this. This sucks. If the universe has sent me to live out this, then I better go in the forest and eat a grain of rice and die gloriously trying to find out what the mystery of life is. I prefer to commit harakiri by meditation rather than live a life like this. I'm a prince, so I would have a reasonably good life. 
I have a child, I have a beautiful wife, I'm, you know, and still I'm sick and tired with the whole thing. I don't want this. Therefore, this clarity of light, this clarity of knowledge, that first of all, I understand the music of the spheres. I understand this incredible synchronicity that everything seems to fit with everything, that everything makes sense, that every atom in this universe is accounted for. And when people speak about accident or randomity, they are just ignorant, they are just fools. There is nothing random or accidental in this universe, even the superficial things which seem to be, they are correlated, coordinated by mysterious laws of this universe. And therefore, Buddha thought that if he brought clarity, some people will take the right decision and will say, okay, I choose to save myself. I choose to see the light. I choose to find the meaning, I choose to discover the Buddha nature, I choose to find the freedom, the knowledge, the immortality, all the characteristics of that state of consciousness. Was it true? Not really. There are many people who cannot understand Buddhism, who don't consider it even a religion. They say, come on, Buddhism is not a religion. A man had a state of nirvana, and now you build a whole religion out of that, Maybe he was crazy. Maybe other people cannot get the same state of mind. If they can get it, why do we say that it's meaningful and it means God, it means everything, it means the Absolute. And therefore, the path of Buddha is not forever. There are people who say, I don't know, I love God wildly. I long for God. Every fiber of my being wants to sing the praise of God. And this thing that I fully understood metaphysics or not makes no difference to me. Like some people are surrendering to bhakti and to the other path, but some, for some people this knowledge is very important. In this way, perhaps it is not an accident that Agama has unfolded so long of its activity in a Buddhist country in the southeast of Asia, among an environment which is generally Buddhist, uh, predominantly Buddhist, because Agama definitely has this side of enlightenment, this side of knowledge. Many people have been to Agama, even many people who disliked me or different aspects of Agama Yoga, they have said one thing we have to tell you, we've been all over around, nobody gives this kind of knowledge. The way the knowledge of yoga and the knowledge of spirituality, like you get it in Agama, or like maybe we like to get the knowledge of, from Agama, and after six years we go to a Tibetan Lama in Nepal, and there we practice the Lamaistic path of Tibet. Or maybe we go to Hridaya Yoga, and we dwell into the heart and do the yoga of the heart, the Hridaya Yoga, and so on. Maybe, no, so in this way, or we go to Paramahamsa Yogananda and we do Kriya Yoga, just the Kriya method and so on. It's possible. But nobody contests the fact that 
one can get a very clear knowledge, a crystal clear knowledge. Is it possible to get it all the way? No, because actually as the knowledge opens, exactly like with the love, the closer you get to God, the more you love God. Is there an end to the love of God? Never. The love of God is something infinite. Is there an end to the knowledge of God and of the Prakriti of the universe? Never. Because this knowledge is infinite as well. It's exactly the dictum which a philosopher said when he said, the more I know, the more I know that I don't know. And like the Pythagoreic philosopher who simply said that he doesn't know and the disciple said, we don't believe you are the master, you are supposed to know. And then he made a small circle and he said, this is your knowledge. And then he made a bigger circle which was around the small circle and he said, that's my knowledge. Compared to you, I know more, much more. But my contact with the unknown, with what's out of that circle, is also much bigger. So where you have 10 questions, I have 100 questions. Because the more I know, the more I realize that there are a lot of things which cannot be explained by the mind, by language, by words, by philosophy. No, the more you know, the more you know that you know the necessary things, like the Four Noble Truths of Buddha, are not the full truth which can be said about the universe. That can sound blasphemous to some Buddhist uh, <clears throat> faithful people, but even Buddha had not reached the end of that. It is as much as it was possible to experience 25 centuries ago by a brilliant brain trained by meditation and other royal skills. And no, it was possible to say and for 25 centuries, it's been enough. Many people listened to Buddha. They agreed to Buddha. They discovered that they have to find out. And then they followed the path of Buddha. Not that there is just one path of Buddha. There is a family of paths of Buddha meant to go there. Buddha, for example, never says, oh, when uh, Mara, the demon, when he talks about his nirvana, the night when he achieved enlightenment. And he says, Mara came, the, some great demon, the equivalent of Satan in Christianity, in a certain way, uh, not a perfect equivalent. And uh, when Mara tested me, and tortured me, and teased me, and then I was about to go in Nirvana. And in the next moment, I felt an overwhelming love for the cosmic consciousness, for the Buddha nature. I realized that this was the infinite, absolute, perfect ocean of enlightenment of Buddhahood from which I had come 10,000 lifetimes ago and of which I had been separated. And now I was uniting with it and I loved it and I hugged it. That would have been the statement of a Bhakti Yogi. Buddha says something different. He says, just before I entered the Nirvana, I suddenly knew everything, saw everything. For example, I saw all my 10,000 previous lifetimes. No Christian mystic says that when they got into a state of divinization, they saw previous lives. Or they saw something weird 
which they don't understood and they could have been the previous lives. But it's a mystery that in the Christian theology there is no previous life story and then I don't know what it was. No. The Christian mystics say that they felt the love of Jesus. That they felt an infinite love. That's the window through which they entered. But Buddha entered through a window of knowledge. He saw his lives. He saw his personal history. He saw the infinite he saw everything, he understood everything, and that's why he, he called himself enlightened. No, like, now I am enlightened, which means I have seen the Alpha and the Omega. And therefore, some of you would be more tempted by the fact that you know omniscience, to know, I cannot, if my heart is a bit more closed, I cannot love what I don't know. You are asking me to love God, and then you tell me that God is incomprehensible. Then how should I love something which I cannot comprehend? Maybe it's a terrible thing. No, maybe something terrible is hidden under that thing when you say it's incomprehensible. No, I first want to know it. I first want to know what can be known. And as such, the second major path which manifests very often through Vishuddha chakra, it's the path of knowledge. The, if Icha Shakti is traditionally related to Ajna chakra more, and of course it has its derivation. I told you there is love on Vishuddha, there is love on Anahata, there is love on Manipura, there is love on Svadhisthana, as we talked in one of the lectures. You now that people on each chakra, in each culture, they have a way of, exp of expressing love, sometimes more refined and closer to the original absolute, and sometimes not so uh, refined. And the same with knowledge. This knowledge is usually expressed on Vishuddha chakra, but you cannot say that people have a strong Ajna chakra. They do not understand. That's how the big concept of music of spheres the music of spheres is the hermetic concept in which basically it is said that everything is in harmony with everything and that's very difficult to understand. Very privileged people had the opportunity to see this universal harmony that everything makes sense, everything is in the right place. There is not one atom of this universe which is not in the right place or doesn't fulfill the right function. So, for some of you, it is more the thirst for knowledge. Jnana yoga, if, if bhakti yoga manifests more like prayer, jnana yoga manifests more like meditation. Like you have to expand the mind, develop the capabilities of the mind, go into this pure domain of science, art, intuition, knowledge without knowledge, but of course also the knowledge which is based on teaching, learning, books, treatises, initiation, and all the things which come in this way. And uh, again, for some people, I have experienced this desire by myself in my young days, this motivation is very 
relevant. People feel that if they know, then they have a grasp of reality. Of course, we discover that when we love God, we don't love God neither sexually, nor sensually, nor possessively, nor egoistically, and even the affectionate love for God is still a superficial form of love, that the true love for God is the love in God, is the oneness, is the samyama, it's the aspiration, the longing to be there. Exactly as the quality of our love for God changes as we tread on the path of Icha, in the same way the quality of our knowledge changes. In the beginning we are curious, we want to know everything, we want to get initiated in a lot of things, then eventually we start understanding this knowledge in a much more internal way. We look at the fact that modern science, after not hundreds but thousands of years of different degrees of science, from Archimedes, an older scientist than him, until today, science cannot create out of nothing, out of the blue, out of prime matter, science cannot create one living cell. One. People cannot take carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen and make an amoeba. A single amoeba, we cannot create it. Nobody has got. We can fiddle with a pre-existing amoeba, but we cannot make a new one. No? And therefore, it is as Emerson or whoever, Walt Whitman, used to say, only God can make a tree. No, we, there is a mystery there, and this knowledge of what is what is a rabbit hole which is abysmal, and it's very, very beautiful. It leads to another way of experiencing reality. And in this way, there is a third part of evolution in which we are neither the ones who long nor the ones who wish to know. But the third Shakti is Kriya Shakti. It's the power of action. There are people who feel that if they don't act out, all the thing which they have learned, seen, felt, all the love, all the knowledge, is dead somehow, because it has to manifest as work. As Mahatma Gandhi said, work is love made visible, but here we are not talking about love, we are talking about the spiritual path. There have been people who have been on purpose, like completely useless to the world. First of all, you have to know that minimum 50% of the souls that have reached enlightenment in the last 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years, we don't know their names. When you sum up all the names of the Christian saints, all the names of the Buddhist arhats and enlightened beings, all the names of the enlightened yogis, all the names of the Sufi saints and all the rest, the Jewish prophets and all the rest, you are still not getting up to half of the number of people who reached enlightenment on the face of this earth 
in the last few thousand years. Why? Because simply some of them were not interested that you should know about them. The fact that you knew about them or not, the fact that you approved of them or not, meant simply nothing to them. It's like Laleshvari says. Very few people know about Laleshvari, about she is known. She said, if I die, what is it to you? If you die, what is it to me? You know? She basically said, we have this Vadistanistic hypocrisy in which we pretend that we care. But it's a very superficial care in which love turns to anger, love turns to hate in a second. No? It doesn't really matter. No? And she said, eventually, no, there are, you are born alone, you live alone, and you die alone. And you have the illusion that it's not so, you just are, this is the Maya on Svadistana that you think. No, you are with your maker. You are in front of the Buddha nature. You are with the universe. But what about love and they exist? Yes, they exist. But depends who has a perfect love. How often can you describe in the history of humanity two men, let's not say a man and a woman, because there we mix sex automatically, but two men, two friends, a guru and a disciple and so on, who had a love which was perfect. And it still lasts today. Wherever they are today, that love is still there and it's perfect. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. But it is so rare that we don't see it and if they have it, they don't show it to you. That's why for some people the manifestation of their divinization is a matter of action. Like they simply say, how do you prove you are enlightened or not? There is this guy living in a cave for 30 years. And one day they went and he was dead. They buried him, they burned him, whatever they did. And everybody said, oh, that Walter who lived in the cave, he was a great man. Some people say, he didn't help me build my house. He didn't help me take a degree in, uh, I don't know, philosophy. So why was he a great man? Maybe he was a great man, but not to me. I don't know anything about him or her. And he or he, her doesn't matter. How do you demonstrate you have greatness? At least Jesus did something. Some people like it, some people don't like it. Buddha did something. Some people like it, some people disagree with it. Krishna did something. No? But like, like this, well, no, I have looked at the history of spirituality and many of these great yogis and Christian mystics and others, they were people who were like divine madmen. They were living in this emotion called akedia, which the, in Greek means boredom, like you sit and do nothing. Because trying to do something is just an illusion which in which you are moved by your ambitions, desires, samskaras, and so on. Just be with God, and what's your usefulness? I don't know. I'm not here to be useful. What am I? A plow? A hammer? But what am I? Am I here to be useful? I'm here just to be. 
There is a wonderful lecture of Osho Rajneesh, I forgot in which one of his books or collections of speeches, where he speaks wonderfully about this with his usual eloquence and uh, zest. You know, he says you don't have to be, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to be evaluated through what you did. You have to be evaluated only through what you are. It's only because you are. God values you for what you are. Yeah, but nobody could see it. So what? They are just fucking baboons and they don't deserve to see it. They don't have the karma to see it. Why should they have seen how big someone really was? And in this way, some people cannot relate to this. And for some people, their connection to the infinite has to be through action. Because in the end, the three energies of Shiva, especially the lowest one, Kriya Shakti, the energy of action, she creates the universe. She comes to the objective reality and she is the forerunner of the actual creation. After the Kriya Shakti, the next step is the Maya, is the Maya and the Kanchukas. Then with the Maya and with the Kanchukas, things are happening already. So Kriya Shakti in the 36 Tadvas of Kashmiri Shaivism is the step just before Maya, the lowest in the divine. It's still the divine. It's still a divine energy but it's a divine energy which requires the manifestation through action. Some people want the manifestation through desire. I want God. Bhakti Yoga. I want to know God and the universe of God. Jnana Yoga. And the other one is I want to be active. I want to do something together with God. I want to work for God. I want to be a finger of God. I want to act for God. And that becomes, of course, karma yoga. The fact that one cannot do, cannot stop from doing action. Before Mahatma Gandhi lived, Swami Vivekananda, the great of India, who, if he would have had the example of Mahatma Gandhi, he would have definitely given the example of Mahatma Gandhi. Shivananda Aurobindo loved the example of Mahatma Gandhi and they used his example but he was not alive or he was too young at the time of Vivekananda the Great so Vivekananda when he looked back in history he said for me a very typical example of a karma yogi is Buddha which I just mentioned for the enlightenment but Buddha Vivekananda said he could have reached enlightenment at the age of 36 if he felt something, he could have passed the knowledge to five other people, to twelve other people, then he could have gone. But Buddha stayed here until he was 83 or 84. He stayed more than 40 years extra after his enlightenment. And he hammered those four noble truths so much. And he dictated so many texts, like the Pragya Paramita, the Heart Sutra, the the, the Buddhist Heart Sutra, and others, and others, no? And he created the Buddhist tradition. He created the rules for the monks, the canon, what to eat and what not to eat, what to do with your sexual energy and what not to do with the, sec 
like all these are things which should be done by a manager, by an administrator, by an accountant, not by Buddha. But Buddha tortured himself to do these things. He could do these things. It took him years. He was very slow. Maybe he was a Taurus. Very slow at it. But he did. So in a certain way, the great Vivekananda, he is true. Because Buddha was not only, he looked for enlightenment, but after he reached enlightenment, then he became also a very big karma yogi. Because he wanted to leave a trace, not for his sake, but for the out of compassion, because he said, exactly as I was confused and in pain 20 years ago, now surely somebody on the face of this earth is also confused and in pain and wants to find the truth. And therefore, it's not only that I have the method, but I have to give the framework, the rules of the game. I have to create the institution, the establishment, which makes it possible. And in this way, the third major path, the third major Shakti, is the Kriya Shakti and the path of Karma Yoga, in which people feel that they have to manifest something. If they know or if they don't know, if they feel the love of God or they don't feel the love of God, they have to actually manifest something. I remember the end of The Thirteenth Warrior, a movie which we recommended recently in the cinema movie here in Agama, and in which he says, Allah be praised in the end, because uh, Ibn Faladan, Ibn whatever, whatever his name was, could become a useful servant of God. Like he felt good because he participated in this battle with his Viking brothers, and together they freed a part of Scandinavia, a village, a whole area, they freed it from some very demonic danger, from some terrible destructive force which was there. And thus, for him, the spirit was the spirit of the warrior. The spirit of... So what if you know everything? If you don't do something about it? So what if you love God and you can feel God and God is answering and you feel you are in the ninth heaven, or as the Jewish prophet said, like you are in the bosom of Abraham, the prophet. No? So what if you don't actually do something for other people? Even Jesus uses this. Jesus leaves the people around him with this mixture of love God, Love God, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's Icha Shakti. But then he also says, any tree shall be known by its fruit. No, Like somebody said, ah, there were people who are a wonderful tree. But he, Jesus says, how will you know? How will the world know? Pe- people, if they can if they are in the right circumstances, they shall do something. Even Milarepa, 
after he lived 30 years in a cave, he taught his method. He came out, he spent another 10 years in a transitional time where he practiced more close to the settlements and the villages, and then, then he taught. He opened a school and he taught his methods, and there is a lineage of Milarepa. His main disciple was called Gampopa, and therefore we know, like Milarepa left the flag, left the flame to somebody to continue. So even Milarepa did not consider, like, oh, if I spent 30 years in a cave, I know the universe, I can do whatever, I have reached enlightenment. What if the other fools will not know about it? No, but then there is no compassion. It's like they will not get anything. I can give them some crumbs which fall off my table to the other people of this humanity who could get something of the gift of my 30 years practice in a cave. And thus, there is the instinct of Kriya Yoga. Some people want to love God through their work, through their action. The problem with Karma Yoga is especially that in Kali Yuga, the universe is upside down, and as a Polish philosopher called Stanislav Jerzy Lech, maybe it's pronounced in a different way, I read it Lech, maybe it's Lech or Lech or something, I don't know, I don't speak Polish. This uh, philosopher, he has a booklet of aphorisms, which some of them are absolutely amazing. You can see he has a very good ajna. And in one of these aphorisms, which I never forgot in my life, he says, in hell, the hero, the main hero, is the devil. Because the hell is the domain of the devil. It's his house. It's his loka. And there, he is the king. And therefore, in hell, you cannot go and speak bad of the devil. Because you'll get punished. The hero, the good guy, is the devil in hell. Which means in hell, the world is upside down. The good is praised as bad, and the bad is praised as good. No? If you would want to go and say, which is a person more liable to be followed spiritually. You know, like I would like to go in the steps, in the footsteps of the following two people. One of them is, let's say, George W. Bush, and the other one of them is the Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran. According to the political science of today, the Ayatollah of Iran is the source of all the terrorism. And if you could meet him, you should shoot him in two seconds because he is one of the darkest bastards on the face of this earth. He claims that Israel should not exist and all sorts of other politically incorrect things. While George W. Bush was second born, he's an alcoholic who quit drinking. He um, liberated Iraq, or if he didn't liberate Iraq, if you don't want to call it that because it's too much outrageous, then uh, something, I don't know, you know. But which one of them is closer to get a Nobel Prize for peace? No? According to the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, of course George W. Bush is here and Khamenei is here. 
But maybe if you would ask somebody from Shambhala, they will tell you that this one is closer to God and this one is one of the fiends of humanity. And therefore, in hell, the devil is the good guy. And therefore, when you want to do karma yoga, for what? Because people, the problem with karma yoga is to say, I serve God. But what do you serve? No? You can serve a branch of an established religion. And then you find out that the Pope, a cardinal, a bishop, some high lama, somebody, they are embezzling money. They are pedophiles. They are this. They are alcoholics. They are this. And then you say, why did I work for them? I thought that I was doing the work of God. No? And then I discover I worked for a very dubious cause. There are many people who work for the Freemasonry, for all sorts of charities, of Bill Gates and others, and they think they are doing a good deed. They donate money, they put works, hours of work, you know, and one day they discover that the people that they served were the devil. Oops! You know, I was in hell and I didn't realize that what looked like the good guys were actually some very bad guys. So with karma yoga, the problem is that either you have a total independence of spirit, like Mahatma Gandhi. He didn't serve any religion. He didn't serve. He just did what he thought was the right thing to be done for God in that time where he lived, both when he lived in South Africa and when he moved to India and he militated for the independence of India. And many people criticized him. They criticize him today. They say because Mahatma Gandhi did what he did, India got split in Pakistan and India and uh, the other thing, the Bangladesh, and more than a million people died in ethnic war. So it was because Gandhi had a chili up his ass and couldn't stay quiet. He should have let the British do the job because they would have done it, you know, not pressed, not with the arm twisted by Gandhi. Now, maybe India would have stayed 10 more years under British yoke, but then the British would have made in such a way that all those nations would have been divided more rationally, more evenly, more gradually, more something, you know. So many people see Gandhi as a violent man who his impetuousness he actually produced a lot of violence while he claimed he was non-violent. That's why the question is, which is the good action? When do you know you work for Shambhala? When do you know you work for the divine? You remember the drama of it exists even in the Star Wars movies. Because every Jedi <clears throat> is asked to serve the good side of the force. But many Jedis end by serving the dark side of the force because it's very easy <clears throat> to confuse the arguments and then who is good and who is bad, who does the good thing. And when Yoda is teaching the young Skywalker, he tries to give him some. He says, when you are at peace, calm, in a detached state, that's the bright side of the force. These teachings <coughs> being actually taken from Bushido. They are teachings taken from Zen, from the martial artists of Zen in the medieval times, who are trying to find out when do you fight with God, with Buddha, 
and it's Bushido, and when do you fight out of your own ego and out of your own hidden motivations and out of your own secret desires and subconscious frustrations and actually you think you are a great samurai but in the end you are just a murderer and a violent person. So with Karma Yoga we have this gift that the people who are extroverted they can manifest. There are people who say yeah you are sitting there for 10 years and you want to know the universe. And lucky you've got somebody to bring you a sack of potatoes every Tuesday. And you have food and you are just being not useless. Nobody knows you. Nobody sees you. Nobody hears you. You are gone and maybe you are just a totally useless creature or something like this. No? And while other people will say, therefore, hey, you have to make yourself useful. You have to do something. So this is the manifestation. Remember, not everybody manifests. There are many, many great gurus in Tibet, Kashmir, India, of course, China, the Himalayas, in Buddhism, in the Zen of Japan, and so on. Some of them wanted to be so useless that they pretended they were crazy. This is the famous tradition of the divine madness, that you pretend you are crazy. In China, they did it even better. They pretended they were alcoholics, the drunk master, the kung fu drunk master, and so on. Like, everybody doesn't give a shit on you. And you are very happy that they don't give a shit on you, and they don't know who you are and they don't know what you can do, because it's none of their business. If they want, maybe there will be one disciple who will break through that mask and will say, come on, teach me, I think you are extraordinary. And you try to play crazy, and you try to play crazy, and you try to play crazy, and your disciple won't let go, and says, even if you pray crazy for the next 20 years, I'm yours, I'm here with you. No, that's an intuition of the soul, and that's a worthy disciple for such a person. But therefore, some people were completely against usefulness and action. As again, Osho Rajneesh reflects it so beautifully in that chapter, in that speech, in that darshan of his. And for some people, it's absolutely necessary. Even Ramakrishna he was crazy for God for a number of years and eventually he wanted to teach other people and he was going up on the roof of the ashram and he said, Beloveds of my heart, where are you? Come to me, I have teachings to give and so on. And eventually a number of disciples started gathering around him uh, headed by the great Vivekananda. So I'm telling you all these to see that there is a worthy thing in the path of Icha, going by the longing, aspiration, desire, love, whatever you want to call it. There is a worthy side of the path of knowledge that some people want to be in knowledge of reality. And there is also the path of action. For example, Mahatma Gandhi was freely taught 
the Kriya Yoga, the first technique of Kriya Yoga by Paramahamsa Yogananda. Like Paramahamsa Yogananda didn't ask him to be his disciple, didn't, uh, today if you want to learn the first Kriya of Yogananda, they put you in a preparation program of one year or two years where you have to kiss the big toe of Shankarananda or of Hariharananda or whoever is the lineage holder. And then they say, okay, we hope you'll be a good boy. Here is the first Kriya. Yogananda gave it to Mahatma Gandhi just like this. Because he could see that Mahatma Gandhi was a great soul. But is it reported that Mahatma Gandhi... And it's a precious technique. It's a real good technique. Did Mahatma Gandhi practice it every day at least 30 minutes? No. But Mahatma Gandhi was spinning wool on a wheel. What, compare, comparatively, what do you think that will take you faster to God? Spinning wheel for one hour or doing the Kriya Yoga technique for one hour? No. It's obvious. Everybody knows the answer. But for Gandhi, it didn't matter because he was not the Jnana Yoga. He was not the internalized person. He had to make himself useful. And for him, spinning wool was a patriotic duty because he wanted India to not buy wool and cotton products from England or from Europe, thus becoming dependent financially and economically. He wanted that people should spin their own cloth at home and live like before the British Empire, live modestly, live close to the nature. For him, spinning wool or cotton, whatever it was, at home, it was an act of revolution. It was a revolutionary karma yoga. And he spent one hour per day doing that out of sheer willpower. No, he did not like he did, he t- took the decision from nine o'clock to ten o'clock. I spin. Yeah, but you could write a wonderful article to a newspaper which will inflame the hearts of thousands of people. No, one hour I spin wool or cotton again. What it was. No? So in this way, I'm saying all these things because I want you to see that the needs of each soul, the prism of each soul is different. In practice, it's not just one. Because in practice, when you do Raja Yoga, when you do yoga like the Tantric Yoga of Agaba, there are many people who have a great aspiration. There are many people who, whenever they have the opportunity, they go to Kirtan, Bhajan, they do Bhakti Yoga, because they feel a state of devotion and they would like to be embraced by God in the embrace of love. There are also many people who do meditation, who want to know. For example, the technology of Laya Yoga, the great yogi Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the founder of the Transcendental Meditation, who practiced uh, mantra technology very close to Laya Yoga in TM, in the advanced stages of TM. He called this way of using mantras and he called it the cognitive input. Like you get knowledge, input of cognition, without, he called it in another place, the knowledge without knowledge. Like you will know a lot of things. Like Rumi knew that the galaxies had the shape of a spiral. Nobody had seen a galaxy 
at the time of Rumi, there was not, there were not telescopes and radio telescopes and things like this. Rumi knew that the electrons spin around the nucleus of the atoms exactly as the planets spin around the sun. This is in the Maknab Meknevi or whatever, in one of his writings written in the 12th century. No? How did he have this knowledge without the science? Because there was no science at that time which went that far. Even if they had inherited some science from Greece or from Rome or from India, it is not known that the ancient science of China, India, Greece, Rome, Egypt or others knew such things. It suddenly appears in the mystical writings of Rumi where he takes it for granted, you know. That's knowledge without knowledge. That's the cognitive input that when you meditate, you don't get just energy. You get information. You get knowledge. And then if somebody asks you, how do you know this? Where do you know this from? It's like it's something which I didn't read anywhere. Like, for example, when I first described to people the sub-levels of the chakras and the story of levels and sub-levels and sub-planes, many people ask me, where did you read that? Who taught you that? Nobody. I just got it one day. Just like this. No? It's from no book, from no guru. You will not find it anywhere. And in this way... And I'm saying that openly, I don't hide it or try to pretend that some uh, angel from Shambhala came and gave it to me when I was sitting on the toilet one day and I was alone. No, I don't say that. So in this way, for some of you, the aspect of knowledge, and of course, for some of you, the aspect of manifesting things. Remember Mahatma Gandhi, he did not care if he had states of samadhi. But he cared to do the right thing every day, every minute, to live in a moral and ethical way and to do the right thing, to act in the right way. And that's why we in Agama, we have people who do Karma Yoga, Jnana Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, and the combination of this is sometimes called simply Raja Yoga, the Royal Yoga, the combination the synthesis of the other three forms of yoga. It goes without saying that this extrovert yoga of karma goes very much through Manipura Chakra because it involves a self-discipline, it involves building things, it involves order, management, willpower, doing things. Many of the people have been karma yogis, have been chaotic, but they still tried to do the things well. Look that people like Mother Teresa and others, they managed, in spite of not having a higher education in business administration or other things, they kind of managed to do many things which other people thought would be impossible. So, in this way, in the satsang from last week and in this one, we managed to define in another way, to make you see in another way, what is the force which motivates you? Are you a lover of God who by aspiration desires God? Are you a knower of God 
who by a sort of divine curiosity wants to understand the music of the spheres and the laws of the universe? Are you a servant of God who wants to serve God on this earth during their lifetime? Are you a mixture of all three and in what you do there is a combination of those? But those are the three shaktis that take you to oneness. That's the trident of Shiva. It's not here. It's on that yantra with the trident, the trident of Shiva. That's the symbol of the trident of Shiva, that the energy subdivides itself in three primary forces, the Icha, Jnana and Kriya. And in case you did not understand the principle, let's get back to the Shaktopaya of Kashmiri Shaivism. How does energy make you go back to the cosmic consciousness? By intensity. When the intensity is constantly over a certain level, it's exactly like somebody is turning the sound on a sound system to the maximum. And it's a real powerful sound system. And then suddenly, you hear nothing anymore. It's gone so much that the sound system is paralyzed. And from the standpoint of what's happening, it's as good as if it was silent. Either you turn the sound down to zero, or you turn the sound to maximum. You still can't use it. It still does not transmit any information anymore. These energies... They have to be amplified to the maximum. The bhakti to the maximum. The jnana to the maximum. The karma or kriya to the maximum. So that in this way you have this effect of whiteout. Because all the three energies they join together in the stem of the the trident of Shiva. They are just three branches of one and the same thing. And then one and the same thing is the mother energy, the Adi Shakti, the Para Shakti, the Shakti, the divine aspect, which is the half of Shiva. Shiva and Shakti, the two halves of the coin, the two halves of reality. And in this way, Shakti takes us to splendor, to completion, to perfection, to infinity. Usually, people, you can look upon the path, like, what did I come to do in Agama? What did I come to do in this world? Okay, I discovered that I'm a bit of a crazy person, and I have spiritual aspiration. And unlike my fellow men, I want to do this more than I want to do what they do. What they do is somehow boring or limited, and what I do, what at least Ramakrishna did, What Milarepa did is great and amazing, and I wish I could do that. And therefore, you know about this, and then you come to the decision what to do. Which path am I going to follow? Meditate. Meditate in the coming time of your life, and find out which one of these forces is the one which is opening the spirit For you, what is attracting you most? Because that's a matter of typology. Not everybody follows the same path. Far, far from that.
Hoping that I brought some more clarity in your lives, in your spirituality, with this classification, looking upon them uh, in a... He's a nature lover. Uh, Therefore, I hope that it will give you a further meditation, a further understanding, and in the next coming satsangs, I will of course approach other themes. If you wish to hear me talk about something which is of utter relevance for you, then of course send your notes and we'll see if it has place in the program of Agama. Let's stop for tonight. It was good enough. Sorry for the technical problems in the beginning, the slight delay. See you along many activities here in Agama. Thank you all for tonight.